0: If you enjoy the conversations I have here on Between the Covers, you might also be interested in listening to the LARB Radio Hour, the weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, where co-hosts Kate Wolfe, Medea Ocher, and Eric Newman speak with writers, filmmakers, and artists whose work touches on some of the most vital and exciting issues of our moment. Their probing conversations bring a broad range of fiction, poetry, history, and essays to life, with recent guests including Laura Poitras, Hilton nalls Daryl Pickney, Elizabeth Colbert, and Otessa Mosfeg. You can find the LARB Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Between the Covers, there are certain types of books I don't do, Not because I'm not interested in them, but due to other factors. Sometimes they fall outside the show's purview as a literature-focused show. So even though books of politics or philosophy or anthropology or science or academic works might influence my conversations, I wouldn't normally pursue a conversation with the authors of those books themselves. Sometimes it's for other reasons, however. For instance, I don't have conversations centered on anthologies because I want the show to attend closely to the text with the author of those texts rather than an editor giving a more distant bird's-eye view of a variety of texts that they brought together by others. So when Tin House reached out to see if I wanted to be in conversation with Katie Holton for her book, The Language of Trees at Powell's Bookstore. I wasn't thinking about the show or making an episode out of it. I was thinking solely of my own personal interest in this project, of an Irish visual artist having made a tree language and a tree font partially inspired by an actual Irish tree alphabet dating back to the 4th century that also used different trees for each letter. And this assembling that she did of all these great writings and meditations by poets and scientists and philosophers and novelists, and then translating them into Tree. The resulting book is described by Pass Between the Covers guest, Max Porter, as a masterpiece, and Katie's Tree Alphabet, a gift to the printed world. So in a way, this is for sure an anthology, or a gathering of the voices of others, and many of those others have been guests on the show. Ross Gay, Richard Powers, Sadie Smith, Ada Limon, Ursula K. Le Guin are all in The Language of Trees, among many others, from Robert McFarlane to Robin Wall Kimmerer to Sojourner Truth, Agnes Martin, Carl Phillips, Amitav Ghosh. But at the same time, it is very much Katie all the way through the book shaped by the visual of the tree language translations, the book shaped by the story of her own Irish heritage. The book not only brought together, but held together by her vision. So I was excited to talk to her as this book touches on so many long-standing questions that have animated so many episodes of between the covers about how changing how we tell our stories, where we might place the human within them, whether we include the non-human and how, how do we engage with time and point of view and more. And we had no plan to record the conversation, but Katie set her phone between us and hit record and sent me the file. And while the audio quality is less good than what you are used to, on the show, after a minute or two, you won't remember that it is. Sometimes a pattern emerges in the podcast, a, a sequence of episodes that seem to be placed together as if by design, when really it's happening uncannily by chance. This happened recently with the conversations with Sharif Shanahan, Monica Yoon, Gugiwa Tiango, and Christina Sharp, where each of these in different ways engaged with blackness and anti-blackness in either Africa or North America or both. And starting with Melanie Rayton, in that episode where we talk about the pantheistic physics and oceanic consciousness that informs her ecologically attuned fiction, and then with the last episode, the live event with Richard Powers and with the Between the Covers episode that comes after today's, it feels like another quartet has been emerging around ecological consciousness and art making. And since we're bringing up Melanie Ray Tone's name, who, while she doesn't literally create a new alphabet, she does create new approaches to syntax and point of view to invite and evoke the non-human other in her books like The Voice of the River... When she was on, she had offered several bundles of her books to new supporters, and they were claimed almost immediately, right when the show aired. She noticed this, and the generous person that Melanie is, she just sent some more, so bundle of signed copies of her books, The Voice of the River and Silence and Song, along with a signed copy of her story, Letters in the Snow, are all available again. This joins an abundance of other things, to possibly choose when you join the Between the Covers community, which you can find out more about at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers. But back to Katie and the language of trees. This ecological quartet seemingly magically coming into being compelled me to share this conversation, even if it was recorded in a less than ideal way. The words and the spirit in which they're spoken will, I hope, quickly overcome the limitations of how this audio came to be. Nevertheless, for fun, I left in the water, being poured into our glasses by Powell's staff, right next to Katie's phone as a signal we're about to begin. Oh, and I should also mention that at the end of the episode, it's going to sound like I'm asking the audience for questions, and we don't get any. But in reality, there was a and a it's just that we never asked consent from the audience because we didn't know we were doing a podcast and the audience wasn't miked in their answers. So in the end, we leave the last word to the trees. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Katie Holden at Powell's Bookstore in downtown Portland about the language of trees.
1: These stories are about...
2: Hi, Katie Holton.
1: Hi, David. And Portland.
2: <laughs> so, one way we could look at this book is very other focused. There's all these other voices that you've invited, and then you translate these other people's writings into Tree, which we'll, of course, are going to be talking about. But I wanted to start where your book ends, which is with your story. When I was interviewing Padre Gautuma, the Irish theologian and poet, who also hosts, uh, Poetry Unbound. We talked about the colonization of Ireland, and about how, like in most places, when you want to break a people, you want to prohibit their language. But we also looked at how Ireland is the most deforested place in Europe. And that didn't happen by chance, that uh, Queen Elizabeth was cutting down trees where Irish people were hiding, and they were cutting down trees to build ships to further colonize the rest of the world. And a lot of the place names in Ireland, and even a language in medieval times, were tree names. And there is a predecessor to your language in Ireland that's a tree alphabet. So I wondered if we could just start with your subject position if you were imagining you were one of these contributors in this book. Talk to us about you, an Irish person now in New York, um, and, and how this tree alphabet scenario came into being.
1: Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be in conversation. It kind of feels like a dream because I've listened to you and your podcast and you're, I can touch you. You're a real person. <laughs> um, I love that you started at the back of the book because the afterward that I wrote means a lot to me, and we were talking last night about maybe it should have been a foreword to have it at the very beginning, but I love that it's kind of a secret history, and only those dedicated readers will find it. Um, I don't want to... how should I put it? Okay, I'm, I'm Irish, and there is that history that we've been told that the British came and they chopped down all the trees, but that's only one part of the story, and as you know more than a lot of people, or like many people, there are many ways to tell stories, and there's not just one story, there are countless, myriad ways. So, Irish people also chopped down trees, and before the British were British, we were chopping trees. But Irish Ireland was a forested country, it was actually a rainforest, and we're only realising that now. Um, and the reason I, I you know, I, I said it myself, and I thought it for a long time that the British came, they chopped down all the trees to make their battleships, those horrible English British people. But it's not the whole story. We were part of that problem as well, and I think that's you know, that's how life is. It's much more complex than the one story that we're told at school. Um, it's convenient to say that they the, the British came, they they did. Cause a lot of harm. They did um, make the Irish language illegal. We had to learn in, in secret hedge schools. I don't even know if the word hedge is an Americanism, and you know, but those trees that you have at the edges of fields. So we had secret hedge schools, and that, to me, is so. There is obviously a very romantic uh, way to. Think about hedge schools, forest schools, tree schools. I I started a tree school with another artist in Dublin, and it's a way to think beyond our regular schools. For me, I feel like this book, The Language of Trees, is an educational tool. I hope it's an educational tool and a way to think outside of the classroom. And um, maybe like the branches and the roots going away from your question. Oh, the Oam! You did mention the Irish tree alphabet. So our medieval Ireland has. Um, a medieval tree alphabet from like around the 5th century called OM, <laughs> like the meditative <laughs> word that is the original sound of the universe, maybe. It's spelled O-G-H-A-M, and I included one of my drawings of OM. I may not find it, but you can flip through it. Oh, here it is. So this is actually the word OM <clears throat> written in English with ink, and as I wrote, I would press fold the page over and press it like a pressed flower. So it ends up, maybe the words look more like insects or living beings, um, maybe like museum specimens. And I think that kind of this one drawing maybe gets to this physicality of language that I'm interested in, the fact that as a visual, I am a visual person more than a, a writer person, so I come to language almost seeing or feeling or see it in three dimensions rather than a line on a page. It exists in real life the way drawings do. And ohm also, there are images here behind us cycling through on a loop. Some of them include the ohm. It is completely mind-blowing. This was 5th century medieval alphabet that was, that's written the way plants grow. There's a straight... Trunk, central line, and then the lines branch off the way they do in flowering plants and trees, and it makes a lot of. So when I realized this, it was during lockdown, twenty twenty, when I was researching the Irish tree alphabet, and I had grown up with them. I knew I knew the basics of it. It's the characters are based on trees, a lot of them, and but, but when it, it, you know, my brain slowly came to this realization. Oh, they drew it the way plants because that's what they had. It was before we had buildings, construction, cities, the way we live now and everything is so abstracted and nature is in a box and humans are separate even though we are in nature. And it just felt like this elemental, like language is alive and living and that's how humans felt it and communicated it and so my irish tree alphabet which it's ca- it's slightly confusing because i made the irish tree alphabet after i made the original alphabet the tree alphabet that i use in the book so here's the irish tree alphabet and along the bottom of the image you can see the it's very small this is i was hoping to make this a a full cycle of the Four Seasons font that you could type. Because all of my tree fonts are available to download from my website, and you can type with trees. So when you type an A, an apple tree pops up. And I was hoping with the Irish tree alphabet that we could have the Four Seasons so they would bloom. My poor designer, Calm, and Carlo <laughs> didn't have time. So maybe in the future. So here here you go. You can see the ohm. So you see, it's just like how a, a tree grows. That's... Languages alive.
2: I want to ask you about image in relation to the word. I mean, all languages at one point were pictorial before they were phonetic. And I think of the Robert McFarlane section mm-hmm. in this book where he says, just as the land is made of infinite masses of shells of long ago animals, Emerson thought that language Is what he called fossil poetry Mm -hmm. that language is made up of images that have long ceased to remind us of their poetic origin and you yourself are a visual artist primarily so you represented ireland at the venice biennale in 2002 three 20 years ago you you draw you map so talk to us about the image in relationship to the word and the
1: speech Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up, I'm the eldest of four children. I grew up in rural Ireland. So I grew up, you know, with my hands in the dirt. I was always outside with trees. My mum is a gardener, floral artist. So that that cycle of life was part of me and who I am. And so plants growing cycles was, in, was just something that I, I guess, took for granted, but felt very connected to the outside world because that's where I spent my time. I'm much more comfortable outside with plants, with non-humans. Of course, I was never thinking about it that way. That's only something I've started to realize recently, the the non-human. And then, I'm Irish, so we have that baggage, the history of Irish literature. And I've always read. I was always obsessed with... uh, obsessed. My dad had a huge atlas. I loved it. It had a big red cover. I would spend, it felt like hours, days, um, turning the pages, looking at the planet Earth and all the different countries, and i use my finger to drive, I'm going to visit all these places and walk all these places. Um, and the the reading of dictionaries, so the Atlas was part of my collection of dictionaries, encyclopedias, trying to understand the world, and they're all black and white and they're all little diagrams, those kind of informative knowledge, books of knowledge. And I wanted to be part of this. I just loved it. I wanted to learn about the world. I wanted to be a physicist. But I was so visual. I was always drawing, I think, I'm told. In school, the nuns gave me chalk. We had blackboards, and I was the one who had to make the drawings and the diagrams. I was locked in the classroom during lunchtime while all the other kids were outside having fun playing, while I had to make drawings. And the ones that I remember are of the British coming in with their battering rams, (laughs) knocking down our... (laughs) <laughs> little huts that the Irish people used to live in, and then they would uh, burn them. And they would evict us. So, it, so those are the earliest memories I have of school and learning. It was visual, and I, I guess I'm just one of those people who sees the world, asks questions, but it is in a visual way. I'm maybe a frustrated writer because when it was the time to go to, to apply to college, I really wanted to do like I love English language, but I. My English teacher was <laughs> really not a very nice person, and told me I couldn't write. Um, the same way this choir teacher told me I couldn't sing, so I should never sing. So I don't. I don't even sing "Happy Birthday." Um, so I think that's why maybe going back to education, what you say to children really matters, and how you teach them. And I think a lot of our friend Tony Fair, an incredible artist who very sadly died recently, but he told me a story when we were driving through Kansas of. A teacher, and it was a memory, you know, he was in his 50s, 60s when he told me this story, and he still remembered it viscerally. The teacher told him that he was drawing wrong. (laughs) He stopped your drawing wrong. And these um, moments stay with people, right? When you're small, those moments are what form you and what stay in your memory. And this is a long way round of saying I don't know, maybe, why I'm more visual than language or where the where they merge and meld, but I am actually, <laughs> it's not really answering your question, but I'm currently translating Ulysses by James Joyce into the Irish Trees font and hoping that by Bloomsday in Dublin, because the Irish UK edition of the book is coming out on June 15th, which is the day before Bloomsday, so we're going to have a celebration of the Ulysses in trees. So... Yeah, I'm not really answering your question, but we could have a whole other conversation about language and visuals. Well, you might have
2: answered my next question, which there are translators in the book, like W.G. Mm-hmm. Zabald's translator in his Tree Orchard. Do you consider this translation?
1: Yeah, and I was very excited to speak with Forrest Gander last, the, yeah. I was going to say last week, a few days ago with Green Apple, because Forrest, you know, it, He's a poet, he's many things, but he's also a translator. And this act of translating, um, I think I mentioned during that conversation with Forrest, even Jennifer Croft has talked about, and others have said that translation is the most intimate form of, of reading, because you're looking at each word. It, it's almost like you are in uh, you know those drawers in a museum, you open them and you can see the specimens, and you can take them out, and each word has other meanings and other ways like they are it is like language is alive and how you turn it and what word is beside it changes how that word is and like where do you even begin it's so complicated it's almost impossible if you think about it how can you translate something and so that's why it seemed completely obvious that i had to make a tree alphabet of because then you're going beyond this english language <clears throat> which was beyond me it was I was the failed writer who couldn't use the language, that's what my English teacher told me, don't write, you can't write. So it's like, okay, I'll forget about our English A to Z and I'll just make a whole new one um, and make up the rules, because artists can do that, we can just make up our own rules and create a whole new world. Should I mention Ursula K. Le Guin? (laughs) The word for world is forest. She's inside of me all day. um, you know, I'm really lucky to be able to stay in the Tin House lodging. Thank you, Tin House. It's so beautiful. Which has a, you know, it's just a few blocks from the entr- an entrance to the Forest Park. And Theola Gwynne had kindly sent some words on what inspired Ursula, the walks that she did Forest Park. So I thought, there's one thing I get to do in Portland. Okay, I have to come to Powell's. This is a dream. But I have to go walking in Forest Park. So um, it's very difficult for me. I have long COVID. Uh, dysautonomia is what I've got it affects my autonomic system so walking um, is challenging and <laughs> breathing my system is broken so my heart rate and my breathing is all broken but I did it I went for an incredible walk the rain stopped and the Sun came out mm-hmm. and the trees the forest was and I just I couldn't stop thinking about Ursula I'd be rereading your book the conversations on writing uh, which I have in my bag and the word for world is forest, just it's a title of one of her books. What else can I say? That is, for me, it says so much, just that title, those,
2: those words. Well, since you brought her up, uh, one of the things that she argued through her career was that all fiction for most of history was fantastical fiction or imaginative fiction, so... Beowulf and the Odyssey, and Hamlet, Don Quixote, until around the Industrial Revolution, which is when realism and the steam engine both appear and she wonders if they're related to each other. But one of the things that I think your book does that also happens in fantastical fiction in contrast to so-called realistic fiction is there's a lot of things in the story that are not human, not just as a decorative sort of thing, but the scale of what is human is different in a fantasy. And then you have questions of other creatures living on other time timeframes right. uh, or with a different intelligence, whether those are invented creatures like a dragon or, or a tree, but your book is certainly putting us in relationship over and over again With beings that are not human? Mm -hmm. That's not really a question, but Mm -hmm. maybe it provokes some thoughts.
1: Well, the the tree alphabet gets back to what I was trying to articulate with the need. It felt like an urgent need. I had to make this tree alphabet. And rereading today, I reread some of that book where Ursula mentioned the animals, she mentioned animals, um, but I think plants as well. There's a sentimentality that's seen like in the real literature world. If you have animals, plants, it's sentimental. And sentimentality is what was the word she said? Death. It's like the worst thing that you can do is be sentimental. And there was a flood of, of memories, and I chuckled and I, you know, laughed out loud because when I had the idea to make this book, which at its heart was a book called About Trees that I made back in 2015. And we, I, I don't know if it's we'll have time to talk about all of that, but when I had the first realisation to make a tree alphabet, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, when I was supposed to be asleep, I hopped out of bed because I saw instantly a blank page and the the trees, the characters, appeared. And I realised the tree drawings that I had been making were the characters and they could communicate the A to Z. And at that moment I realised this is the book. I could, I saw, it was much smaller, there were only going to be three authors, Rebecca Salnit, Tacita Dean, the British artist, and I thought I'd have to write the alphabet. <laughs> so it was going to be a very slim little book with this three alphabet. But I, And I wrote to my brother, um, John, who's a writer and had the press, Broken demonch Press in Berlin, who wanted to make a book together. And I gave him the outline. Um, it was two o'clock in the morning. I wrote that email and I said, but it's maybe kitschy. And I used that word cheesy or kitschy. But as soon as I read that, what Ursula said to you about sentimentality, I realized, obviously, she was the wordsmith and she had the words and she was able to use that word sentimental, whereas I used the wrong word. Kitsch. But that's exactly... What I, I was worried about working with trees, having a tree alphabet that people would dismiss it as, oh, it's very girly, she's a tree hugger, and we would put that over there in that corner. Um, and I think it's so true. It almost scared me away. I almost didn't send that email, and I almost dismissed the whole idea and said, mm. but it was so strong, I had to do it. I could feel like the book made itself. Mm-hmm. In a way. Well, my,
2: the short version of my next question is, why trees and the long version is when I was in conversation with Richard powers, he said that trees have, have been invented at least six different times in history, independent from each other and evolution that clearly the insistence of nature continuing to reinvent the tree means there's something particular and special about the tree. Um, And he expressed a lot more faith that trees will be here in a millennia from now than humans. In your book, Richard Powers says, this is not our world with trees in it, it's a world of trees where humans have just arrived. So in light of that, I'm curious for you, why trees and not birds or whales or glaciers (laughs) as your your, uh, alphabet?
1: Well, I did make a stone alphabet <laughs> um that Emergence magazine has shared. But the, the trees it's it's very there's a short answer in that I had started drawing trees when I, I moved to New York in two thousand and four, almost twenty years ago, right after I worked on the Venice Biennale. Um I went to New York on a Fulbright to research our relationship with nature in the city. And I figured you needed to be in a city to look at nature. So it was this problem problematic word, the fact that you have a word called nature that automatically then separates us from it, even though we are it. And that was a one-year research grant proposal project, and I'm still doing the same work. So I was in the East Village, Alphabet City, going for walks, because that's how I work, <laughs> through walking and conversations and being in the world. And I started making um, drawings, just on small sheets of paper like that, of the street trees, because obviously Manhattan is a grid. Um, the street trees are all lined up. And it was a way to me for me to have a connection with the one, two, three of the city, trying to understand it. I'd never been to New York before I was making my way. And the conversation with this strangeness of a, a city, a street tree that exists on its own you know on the cover we have this forest community this is how I know trees they're connected to each other in invisible ways maybe underground that we can't see with their branches above but in the city you have the buildings and then these trees and it was just something I I was drawn to I think I also found it difficult being in the concrete jungle Um, but I started making those drawings in 2005 tree drawings then 10 or no, a few years later, I was invited to make a tree. I made a tree museum project, a public art project in the Bronx. I used 100 trees to tell the story, the 100 year story, through the voices of people. So it was people and trees and community. I think there is an image of the tree museum up there. And it was 10 years later, uh, almost. So 2005, I moved to New York, was making the tree drawings. 2015 was when I had that middle of the night epiphanies. Of <laughs> too big a word, but I had that realisation, the click, where, oh, those tree drawings that I made ten years before, which I then turned them into objects, like this is a large tree that I constructed with recycled materials for the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, um, so those tree drawings from ten years ago, they themselves are the characters, and so it became, a, it was like a realisation that the the marks on a page could could be more, they could communicate Beyond me. And it's also, it's about confusing things, but also making it very clear. Like, this is an A, but what is it? And that confusion that you have. Um, I want to go back to mention Richard, and maybe this is because you mentioned Richard Powers, just to acknowledge the fact that this book is, um, I think it's very beautiful, but the paper is also very special. It's thanks to Richard Powers that we have the paper. Uh, He worked with Beth Stiedel, the designer who was doing the design research and researched all the papers because Richard really didn't want to kill trees in the making of the overstory. And so Beth um, found this recycled paper that's recycled, no trees were killed in the making of it. And so Beth was then um, hired and able to work with Tin House and us on this book, The Language of Trees. So at at a kind of cellular level, Richard kind of has a, a huge quiet voice in this book. So it was wonderful that he was able to share his words as well. And then also you mentioned um, he pointed out how trees have always come back. I included this drawing of, I, forgive me, I can't remember the name of which tree it is, but it's about 250 million, or I'm bad with numbers as well, 450 million years old. So this is a fossilized version of one of those trees that was growing back then for the dinosaurs, and then it stopped. But these are the xylem. The, and so the, the deep time aspect um, is really, really important. I have a section on tree time. I think. think if we could slow down and think more like trees in a circular way, I think this would help solve a lot of our the the enormous problems that we have right now. My t-shirt says state of emergency because we're in a climate emergency. We're in many... States of emergency, but the the huge um, you know elephant in the room is that we're in a climate emergency. Our species is teetering on the edge of extinction, and what are we doing about it? Yeah. We're all here together talking about trees and books, which is wonderful. But um, it, it's it's very I'm left speechless. So I have these T-shirts for my book tour that <laughs> share a little bit of the message. Um, I hope. Uh, what has this got to do with anything?
2: Well, sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned deep time, because when you were okay. talking to Forrest Gander, he mentioned that his favorite, or one of his favorite writings in this book was by Amitav Ghosh, which was my favorite. And I'm just going to paraphrase what he says as a lead-in to my next question for you. But He talks about how trees communicate, how they can send for help, How they can warn one another and how they emit sounds that we can't hear but other creatures can hear and that these intentional acts can unfold over completely different scales of time because trees have inhabited the earth much longer than we have and their individual lifespans also far exceed ours so in his reasoning if they possess modes of reasoning their thoughts would be calibrated to a completely different time scale. And so maybe not recognizable to us. And of course, in your book, you also go into the fact that trees migrate. And Mm -hmm. there's uh, all sorts of science now around tree communication for various reasons. Uh, But talk to us about your thoughts on the rights of nature. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned, what are we doing besides talking about trees in a bookstore? You're involved in a lot of work in the world, and one of those things you're involved in is around the rights of nature. So what? tell us what that means, mm-hmm. and in what way are you um, active in that realm?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I was tempted to wear my Protect the Rights of Nature t-shirt, <laughs> but I was going to, I'm going to wear that tomorrow in Seattle. Um, I really wanted to include rights of nature. I feel it's very 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 important right now and it's um it feels like maybe the most important thing that I can be doing apart from the educational aspect and getting into classrooms and working with young kids. And I tried to include rights of nature in the subtitle but it doesn't roll off the tongue so that didn't happen. And we have the word rewilding which is related to it. Rights of nature is it goes back to what I've mentioned earlier about how nature separates us. Um the fact that we tend to, the way humans, our brains work is that that word means that we think we're not nature. And we've forgotten, or maybe it goes back to the very first question about colonisation, and this being made to forget who you are. So in Ireland, we've forgotten that we were forest people because it was beaten out of us. And we had a rainforest, it's being brought back through the rewilding that people are doing. But we didn't even know we had a rainforest. This is just brand new, um, It, in my understanding, in the last few years during lockdown, co- during COVID, um, the fact that there is an Irish Atlantic rainforest, that's the natural ecosystem on the west coast of Ireland. And so to break down all of this, the hundreds of years of colonization of our minds and hearts and mi- hearts, minds, and reality is to remember, and I think this is where the indigenous communities are are leading the way because they've never forgotten, they know um, and they've been trying to tell us and they've been campa- campaigning for rights of nature in Ecuador and it's now a global movement to bring rights of nature into constitutions because it's a way to say okay, Nature, we are nature. If we protect this body of water, and water tends to be the the ecosystems that are the first um, the first line, if you will, in the rights of nature movement, because we all need water. Right here, I'm going to finish my glass of water before you do. Um, but it's fundamental to our living. Right, we all need water. So if you protect nature, you're protecting yourself, your family, your community so it goes without saying then you need rights of nature because that's protecting yourself so why is it not included it's like we've forgotten who we are almost so it's remembering and that's related to the rewilding reimagining yeah so remember who and what we are and where we come from and where we're going so this goes back to the deep time right you can't have a future if you don't have your past and it is all connected we're writing the future right now so this Rights of Nature campaign I feel is is extremely important and I helped co-found a group in Ireland called Friends of Artie Bog to protect the bog near the home, my home where I grew up where I made my first artworks in the bog and I was campaigning for the Rights of Nature to protect the bog which protects the community and I got in um, a very uncomfortable situation where one of the new members felt very strongly that it was not needed and not wanted by locals and it was going to scare them. And I had to step away and stop working with the group. And it's been very difficult emotionally, mentally, physically for me. And coincidentally, I don't know, if maybe there's no such thing as coincidence, um, that happened last Earth Day, last April. And then two days later, I tested positive for COVID. So (laughs) are there witches... Or is there voodoo going on? I don't know. So a year later, we're here, we have this book. We're talking about rights of nature, but my whole life has changed because I'm living with long COVID and dysautonomia. And it's, to me, you know, I I don't want to be too um, mystical because I know there are shops around here where you can buy crystals. And we just drove up through California, lots of crystals. Uh, but there is definitely a, to me, it feels like it is all connected this the breakdown in communication where I couldn't even speak about rights of nature, I was told no we can't we can't even mention the climate emergency, we can't talk about climate strikes, we can't talk we have these conversations with the students. You know, just thinking about it now makes me so sad. I'm also angry, but really really, really sad because we couldn't have these conversations at that level with my neighbors. Um, we love this landscape at our home and we're trying to protect it and we're all, that's why we came together as a group. It was very powerful and beautiful. But there was this breakdown and that shows the, at the scale of our species on the planetary level, what a difficult um, dilemma we're in if we can't communicate and move forward. So hopefully, by talking about it, right, I'm hoping that the the book is one way I can throw something out into the world that will maybe hopefully snowball and we can have these conversations and something beautiful will come out of it, out of all that okay. ugliness.
2: <laughs> well, just to piggyback on your comments about colonization and memory, um, I think that the, what Winona Leduc says uh, in your book, Near the Beginning, connects language and, and memory. And so if we think about the breaking of language in Ireland and this forgetting of what the landscape was like, maybe there is a relationship. She, She says, near the beginning of the language of trees, if language frames your understanding of the world, those who live on the land have a different understanding than those who live in the memories of emperors. There's no empire in creator's time. But I wanted to stick for just one more moment, with activism. You have tree-sitting activists in the book. You have the Guns to Shovels project in Mexico. And I think about, like again, back to when Richard Powers was here. and He came late for the overstory, but a lot of what's portrayed in there are fictionalized versions of actual acts of civil disobedience that happened in Oregon and Northern California. And it was pretty intense, the interactions that were happening with Richard and some of these groups that, Recognize themselves um, fictionalized in his book when we had that event. But I remember, and I discussed this with him also, um, in the 90s in Portland, a lot of these environmental groups had storefronts. You could walk to Cascadia Forest Alliance's office on Clinton Street and leave food for the tree sitters, and they would drive it out there that day. And I mean, even in, in environmental liberation front, on Burnside had, I think it was right up front of Chinatown had an uh, office front, and I just wondered if you had any any thoughts you wanted to add. I mean, all of that has disappeared because all that was labeled, all that civil disobedience was labeled eco-terrorism, mm-hmm. with an enormous amount of consequence for even nonviolent actions that disrupt commerce and corporate. Mm Profits.
1: Where to start? I have, maybe I should show you my head. Can you see this? I can. So this is the extinction symbol. I branded myself on this day last week for my book launch. Um, Extinction symbol is included in the book. Um, And Extinction Rebellion, the group, uh, was formed a couple of years after. Um, ex- the extinction symbol came first, so it's a circle which represents Earth, with a an hourglass which shows that we're running out of time, and it's we're reworking kind of of the peace symbol which is on the back of Dylan's head. Um, so, where to start? Well, one thing you mentioned, with Duke. I I loved that she was so excited to share her words and be part of the book, and. To be able to open the book with her words, for me, was really important because she talks about this, the calendar, this calendar that I grew up with, how wrong it is, um, the maple trees and, and the sap and that relationship. So I just felt like it was so, to, to me, it felt very appropriate as a, an entryway into the, the language of trees. And then the activism, I did not know that. I hadn't heard those stories, that there were actual um, storefronts or Offices where you could go and donate. You know, I was in the middle of rural Ireland, I didn't know much about anything. Um, So, my knowledge of America is very, Dylan will tell you there are things I know, and then there are most things I don't know. So, um, that is heartwarming to hear, but it's sad when we see how far we've come. And, you know, I'm going down to Atlanta, Georgia, um, in a few weeks, and hopefully going to meet up with. And support. The reason I want to go is to support the Defend Atlanta Forest movement. What's what's happening there is atrocious, it's horrific, it's very disturbing and it needs to be stopped. When you have peaceful forest defenders who are being shot dead, uh, where, where do we go from here? What has brought us to this point where we can't have these conversations that are just Guns, so it made me think. Okay, there's the Earth First, right? That movement. I didn't hear about that when I was little. I only came to that more recently. But what's happening now in the UK? They're making um, any gatherings illegal. So for Extinction Rebellion, they came up so quickly right after Breda Thunberg in 2018, and they were able to shut down London. It was beautiful. It was like the love parade. It was all about celebrating the beauty. And this is what I find with the resistance movement that I work with with groups like Rise and Resist in New York, um, that it is, uh, it's about beauty and power and love and compassion. That was the other t-shirt I wondered if I should wear, Love is Power. Um, And that, for me, that's what is at the heart of the book. It's about a love for the world and the beauty that's in the world and that is you know people we are beautiful and we communicate with each other and we tell stories but that you know we're out in the streets screaming and shouting and making music and and humorous posters in protest against the most atrocious horrific actions coming from the top down you know since 2016 thinking about, Every day I was out with a different sign for a different act that had to be protested. My mum asked me, she said, why Why do you have to protest all the time? And I, all I could say is because um, people are being attacked. Everyone's being attacked. And we have to stand up. I'm privileged, right? I'm an artist. I'm a white lady. I can afford to walk out of my studio. Well, I can't really afford to. <laughs> but I, I feel compelled to when I... I have to, so I make the sign and I go out and I join others, and um, and it's really beautiful. But then, you know, the twist side is I can't get arrested, so I have to take photographs rather than be part of the arrestable actions. Um, we could go on and on about these stories, but I I feel like for me the book was a way, so I've spent years doing it, taking part in these actions. The book is a concrete way because I I have always love books and I know how powerful they are and how they can change people and what a difference they can make. So I thought if I make a book, a beautiful book, maybe it can make a difference and might help people fall back in love with the world. So I think this is a big part of it, right? We've heard it many times over the last few years. You can't love something and prote- you can't protect something unless you love it. Yeah. So we need to love each other, ourselves, other species. And hopefully the tree alphabet is a way and invitation into into that
2: well, maybe as a, a lead into questions from the audience. I'll just quote what Wendell Berry said, which is is related to what you just said. He said that in the language of trees, he says, "We exploit what we need, we defend what we love, and we need a particularizing language for we love what we particularly know. So if anybody has any particular questions they want to ask Katie, this is the
1: time. The trees get the last word. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks everybody. I I need to um, figure out how to say that (laughs) in (laughs) tree.
0: Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Katie Holton's work at katieholton.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests and every listener-supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, which includes supplemental readings from everyone from Ross Gay to Richard Powers, Max Porter, to rare collectibles from past guests, including from Ursula K. Le Guin, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and then sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank Powell's bookstore and the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMayo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nashell in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Brague, Sapatita Mi can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Barbara Browning.